ready. Hello and welcome to the Comedian's Paradise, a podcast where we speak to transcendent, amazing and fabulous people from across the globe that help comedians like you and me live this comedic journey on our own terms. If you like this podcast, share it with your friends, give us a five-star review on Amazon or iTunes. And most importantly, subscribe and join the journey. Now, today's guest is absolutely awesome. He's a comedian all the way from Cornwall who's walked to be a, to appear on this podcast. <laughs> he's a man who has a fascinating journey. He's He's been a boxer. He's been a skater. He's interviewed comedians that most of us would be shit scared of on his podcast, Conversation with Criminals. He's gigged across the country and he is he is a pure example of what it takes to be a pro comic in the uk please welcome the fantastic matt price hey marv you know i've i've that was a nice intro man i i appreciate that because you get some terrible ones sometimes <laughs> what's being a story then that, that's the question <laughs> um i there's been um just random ones. I was in Cardiff once and it was sort of a corporate and the DJ insisted on getting up and telling jokes about um, somebody who'd just been murdered and did so to total silence. I said, oh, sorry, I've got a professional next. Huh, never heard of him. Matt Price. You know, um, I did the, I did a, an associate, a, a gig for, I won't say who it was, but it was um, in Cambridge for a group of dentists. And the guy in question said, ladies and gentlemen, have you heard of Live at the Apollo? And they all went, yeah. Have you heard of, have I got news for you? Yes, we have. Have you heard of, you know, they listed a whole host of television shows. And they said, well, so is this guy, but he's never been on any of them. Here he is, Matt Price. So you were quality, mate. Thank you. Does that, does that in some ways, would that also even, even if you are on TV, if you beat them up too much, you're going to make them nervous. Isn't that uh, also been yeah possibly possibly i mean to be honest by that point i don't know what you're like but when i'm when i'm walking out i forget i, I tend to ignore anything other than just sort of walking out you know i my body's got into the state where i know i'm about to perform so my head is in that sort of focus state it's almost like tunnel vision so they can say more or less anything they want and actually sometimes they can be doing you a favor sometimes a, an awful introduction can actually really help you because it, you you can use it to your advantage you know hmm. yeah there's a couple like what's it called ali woods used that uses that in some of his openings and then what's it called you got luke oliver he had an interesting incident with someone and he he puts that in his set yeah yeah absolutely yeah you know you, you can i think once you know your persona which i think to a certain extent is dictated to by how the audience perceives you over the years you can then twist anything that's thrown in your direction and use it to your advantage you know so there's uh, to begin with of course you kind of I, I used to take it very personally you know I've walked out in front of I remember walking at Reading University actually years ago and the the audience just stopping applauding I was 10 feet away from the microphone I remember how much it hurt me you know and I said hello and no one said hello back and I said well look it's an international greeting why can't you say hello hello nothing and then finally somebody went, hello, and then we were off, it was fine. But what I've learned over the years is that you can actually turn it all to your advantage. I'm a big, fairly serious looking guy. I'm not necessarily a smiley comic. Well, okay, you might say when comedians walk out, and I'm sure you've seen it when they go, hey guys, you know, how are you? Great to be in wherever the hell it is. Um, and, and you think, oh God, I wish I was you. I wish I was that cool. 
you know, the women in the audience are already naming their kids after you and all the guys that you're really <laughs> cool. It must be amazing. You know, and, and I walk out and go hello and nobody wants to speak. But and that used to really hurt my feelings. But now it's almost like, oh, actually, I can enjoy this. I can have a bit of fun with this now. So it's a bit like ah, and a bit like Jeff Innocent. Like he when people yeah. he does that opening joke about him looking racist. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. It's perfect. It's perfect, really. Once you've embraced that what makes you you. You, you can really develop and evolve as a comic because anything you might be subconscious about, most people either they don't see it or they don't care about it in the same way as you. It'll always be something else. And in my head for many years, it always used to be, well, I'm quite a very shy person. So I walk out and I say hello and, oh, there's somebody looking at me. Well, sometimes that's just how people watch comedy. Sometimes they don't laugh the whole time and they'll come up and go, that was amazing. Oh, you were so good. And somebody else will come up and, and they were laughing and they'll say, oh, that was terrible, mate. And neither of those things are true, but, but it's important how you deal with it in your own head. So in terms of yeah. when I walk out, you know, I just, it's all about mindset for me, but embracing what makes me different and what I think makes me different, you know, is my size, the seriousness, you know. And how, how long did it, sort of take for you to get that to that level where you I would honestly I would say it took about eight years now that doesn't mean it's gonna take everybody eight years because like Russell Kane was brilliant within about six months I remember him just being incredible and you know and I'm sure he would say I'm not speaking for him by any means I don't know him that well but you know he, he would say that he's a very different comedian now but he took to it straight away for me it took me a very very long time and it was actually it was my missus it was Martha my missus who said to me one day she watched me and she said, why are you so aggressive on stage? Because I'm not aggressive now by any means. And I said, well, because I'm just very shy and I'm very self-conscious. And, you know, it feels like they're out to get me. She said, no, 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 no. You've, you've got it completely wrong. Why don't you just try being nice to them? Just be nice to everyone. Just be the person you are. She said, because that isn't you. you you're, not, you're not no threat to anybody. She said, okay, when you're not smiling, you know, you might look a little bit serious and possibly a bit intimidating, but why don't you embrace the fact that you really like people? She said, so you can laugh at the fact that people see one thing and actually you're the other. And that's where your strength comes in. And then that I applied that to everything. So I applied it to heckling as well. You know, so somebody heckles, it doesn't necessarily mean they're not going, I'm going to hurt you. Or, you know, they might, they might be thinking, I'm going to try and embarrass you, but th that's not the case. Sometimes there's all, as you probably know, there's all different types of heckles. And I just, once I got around my head that I can just be the person that I am, like mm -hmm. an amplification of who I am off stage and bring that on stage, it just made it that much easier. And I'd say it took about, I remember it actually, it was, it was a gig in South Wimbledon because we'd come to London in 2009 and I remember there was a woman in the audience who you would describe her as strikingly attractive. Now I say that with respect, I'm not, you know, being lecherous in any way, please don't say that, don't misquote me on that, you know. I don't want to be on any lists on the comedy collective or anything, <laughs> you know. But, but she was, and, and, and I know this because there was a group of about 12 guys who were all sort of, you know, fawning over her while she was sat in the audience. And there was other women there as well. And for the first time ever, I embraced the fact that, yeah, I'm a big guy and, you know, I'm ugly. I'm okay with that. I'm all right. You know, and I embraced it and I had 
really a lot of fun. And I can remember saying, look, I said, you are beautiful, but how pitiful are the men who are surrounding you? I'm sorry, guys, but I wasn't nasty to them, but I was just being nasty. I mean, mate, come on, could you look any more desperate? Look at your body language. I just had fun with them and realized, oh, actually my weakness, me being self-conscious and me being, looking the way I look and being the size that I am, I can really, really send myself up and I can have so much fun with that audience in front of me. Now, yeah. I, I can I can say to a woman, I, 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 weirdly, I was at a gig in, um, in Bournemouth and there was a uh, hen group in and there was 20 of them. And I just said, hello, my darling, to this woman. I said, would you, can you do me a favor? I want to get booked again here. I said, I'm not telling you what to do. Can I just say you're all looking very, very glamorous tonight. Um, but would you mind just giving me 20 minutes? And she went, right, you lot, shut the fuck up. Let him talk. And I got to do my job. And I realized, oh, actually, being yourself and approaching it from the, the point of view, I'm not saying, oh, I'm terribly, I'm terribly authentic, Marvin. That's why. But it's, I don't mean <laughs> that. What I mean is that once you sort of accept yourself, once you learn your range and how you can communicate with people, that's when you get ahead of the game. And that's when you feel like, oh, I can actually do this. And every now and again, I will shrink back into myself and I will be the nervous, shy, ugly, fat bloke with a serious face who feels like he's not worthy to be there. But that doesn't happen very often these days. Hmm. And what you said that there is, is, is something that can be applied for everything. It's oh, all yeah. about the mindset. Very much so. Look, I, I want to meet people. And this is no huge revelation, but I, I want to meet people at their best. I'm not sycophantic. I'm not trying to take liberties with anybody. I don't want anything from anybody. You know, I'll do your gig, but I'm not, but I'm not going to compromise myself. But I want to meet people when they're at their best. And I want them to bring out the best in me. And yes, you can. And, and quite often, there's very little in life. And this does apply to comedy as well, obviously. Life is comedy. It's a huge part of our lives. There's very little in life that can't be sorted out just by talking to someone. I, mean, I, I haven't seen you for a couple of years now. Can you imagine if it was another few years down the line, we haven't spoken, suddenly it's, well, I don't know if I want to speak to that guy anymore. Oh, I don't, how, how, can we communicate? I don't know. And the answer is, yeah, you can. Of course you can. Because all it takes is, hey, how are you doing? But a lot of people don't do that. And I've been that guy myself. You know, I've spoken to some delight, there's some amazing people in comedy. There's some people who aren't amazing, but I try to avoid those people. They're, they're a handful of people. But for the most part, there's nothing in life and in comedy that can't be sorted just by saying, hey, how are you? I, I definitely agree with that statement. I think there's a lot of stuff. One of the things I don't like is when, and I spoke to someone on a podcast, that psychologist guy, he says, mm -hmm. just because you've had bad experiences, you have this and that, doesn't make everyone like that. It's like no. if, if a girl gets treated like crap and she thinks all men are evil or whatever. Mm. Just yeah. because you came across one person that's dodgy doesn't mean that everyone's like that. Just, it, and I think to, people either get bitter or they think too much on those things and they try and get back in and they spend all that time doing it. And it's a bit, just get on with your job. And if you don't like someone, you don't get on with them. Just avoid them. It's as simple as that. It's not, it's not rocket science. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. And, and, and it takes a while to get to know people as well, you know, and, and especially at gigs because we love it, but it can be pressurized, as you know. So if if I go to somebody's gig or I had a gig with someone, I don't know what's going on in your head because you might be thinking, oh, man, I died on my ass last night or, or I'm hoping my joke about palm trees 
works tonight. You know, you might be focused on something else that isn't necessarily me. Just because I'm the center of my own universe doesn't mean that I'm going to be the center of your world. So, you know, I, I give people a little bit of leeway as well, unless they're extremely rude, in which case I avoid them. Or my more recent policy is to deal with it and just tell them because that's easier. Uh, <laughs> it's but you, you, you do, you, as you say, you do things where you deal with them at your best. And how do you do that? How do you, because like, you, I mean, you've been in comedy business for years and years and like, there must be all sorts of good things, odd things or whatever. And how have you learned how to brush it all away? <laughs> well, well, you don't, I mean, it depends. I think that sometimes it's easier than others. Some things you can kind of go, well, actually, I, I think I can understand why you feel that way. So if you can understand somebody's, I mean, I sound like a really bad psychologist now, don't I? but you know, I, if you can understand why somebody behaves in a certain way, it makes it easier to forgive them, you know? But it can be hard as well, because sometimes it's a comics mentality, but I think maybe it's even human nature, whereby you can meet a thousand people you like and one person who doesn't like you for whatever reason, and that can really mess with your head. And one of the things about being a grown-up for me anyway, is accepting that, that even if I try hard, even if I give my absolute best to be the best I can be, communicate to the best of my ability, not everyone's going to like me because people can always, always misunderstand you. Or maybe it's my failure to make myself understood. So the answer, the answer really is I don't know. I just, it, it's a numbers game. Most of the people I get on with most of the time and I try not to dwell on the idiots. The occasion, you know, I had an idiot get in my head for about a year or so, but you know what? I eventually, I just thought, no, it's time to move on. You have to move on eventually. I've only, my brain isn't that big and all the information in the world is a lot bigger than I can get into my brain. So I can't really clog it up. Okay with concerns about other people and what they might be thinking but that doesn't always work it's hard work one thing uh, ben said benjamin bella president of Bungie, says one of the things I... is with comedians is like you've got to develop resilience and like a lot yeah. of us are looking too much for external validation and we're not in the we need to work on being independently minded um well i didn't i didn't hear the interview unfortunately but um i i don't quite know what the independently minded means. Like being very sort of sure of yourself and knowing what you are and what your thoughts are and like be willing to be yourself rather than following the crowd or like being too bothered by, oh, this isn't the way you're supposed to do it. I'm going to do it my own way. Oh, yeah. Look, I respect anyone who tries to do it their own way for sure. But I'm also very much aware that there's a difference between you know, saying I'm going to be a great individual and do my own thing and actually doing it. Because let's be honest about it. One yeah. comment, one comment can actually bring you to your knees. That's the truth of it. That's true. Definitely. Yeah. It doesn't take an awful lot. It doesn't take an awful lot. We can be very fragile people sometimes. And one word from somebody and you can be in bed for a week, unable to function, you know, and that, that's sad. That is sad. And as much as I admire individuality and making your own path, the reality is that sometimes people are fragile. And once again, you can't always see that. And that's where communicating with people comes into it as well. And what, what would you say? So you've gigged from when did you you start being it for sort of 24 <laughs> years, something like that? Yeah, no, no. I, I, I started in 2001, right? And I sort of dabbled. And then I moved to 
Cardiff and we set up an open mic night at a place called, well, it was the award-winning Yellow Kangaroo. It was a, a pub called the Yellow Kangaroo. It's free entry on a Sunday night. On the first night, we had three speakers that exploded. And lucky there were two sound engineers in who actually helped to fix it. And we've been the best to make it ever since. And I learned how to, to, to work a crowd, but I did so by making every mistake imaginable. I mean, I've, I've honestly, every type of mistake, I can't even tell you. They used to keep the, the landlord, Bob, would keep the uh, television on. So they would have the snooker on. And I used to time it so that I would tell a joke in time with somebody potting a ball and the audience on the telly would applaud at the end. So I, if I got to the punchline, I would do it so that the ball would pot and then I would get applause off the telly and I would go, thank you very much because I was dying that badly at the mm. time, you know, because it just happened because people weren't necessarily interested. You know, that, that only hadn't paid to get in. The audience said, well, I, I've seen Bob Monk. Oh, you know, who are you, mate? I don't know who you are. You know, and you're like, well, sorry, dodgy Welsh accent alert. But, you know, I, I lived there for 12 years, so I can do it. Um, <laughs> and, and the Cornish are part Welsh, so please forgive me for that. But th it was an awful, it wasn't an awful, it was a very good learning experience, but I didn't quite know what I was doing. Sometimes I'd storm it. I've walked out and I've, I've to announce the comedy will be starting in two minutes. And I've done 10 minutes and the audience were roaring with laughter. And then I got off stage and thought, oh God, I've got to go on and do that properly now. And then just died and not know why. And so, you know, really, you know, I mean, a lot of people will say, you can ask a comedian, and it's always an interesting point, isn't it? I'm sure you've done this, where you say to a comedian, so uh, how long have you been going? And they've been going for eight years, and they go, well, you know, it's sort of eight years, but really only took it seriously sort of three gigs ago, so I've been going for like, you know, two days. It's, it's, it's what people say. Everyone kind of exaggerates oh, how yeah. long they've been going for. But, you know, I, I hold my hand up. Yeah, I started in 2001. I was unsure of myself, dabbled in 2004, was, you know, clinically depressed for a couple of years, you know, brutally depressed. I don't want sympathy for that, by the way. Anyone who says I do, um, with utmost respect, go fuck yourself. Because depression, no, I, you know, seriously, it's better out than in. Um, and I worked on myself and developed and evolved and, you know, one, one step at a time, basically, and, and just made all the mistakes, just every, every mistake imaginable. But not just on stage, but also industry mistakes as well. But that's another thing. And how, how did you, how did you, um, how did this, because you mentioned in the other interviews that the circuits changed a little bit from what it used to be from when you started. And how, what would you say those changes are? <laughs> well, I hope I didn't come over as well back in my day, you know. Um, I hope not. I hope I did. Who are these youngsters? I'd hate that. It came across as just factual and like, yeah, fact well, rather than opinion or anything. You know, I guess, I guess there's a lot more comedians now. Um, everybody seems to have the same CV. You know, everyone says they're a professional comedian. For, for the most part, not everyone, but a lot of people do. I'm a full-time professional with gigs all over the UK. And I'm like, yeah, great, good good for you. So am I. So how, 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 am, I, how am I any different to you? You know, and, and there's <laughs> nothing wrong with that, but really. And then, then you look into it and you go, oh, you've got the comedy store and arts. You did, you did King Gong, nothing wrong with it. You should go and do that. And, you know, I'm not knocking anybody, but it's almost as though, I guess there's, there's an awful lot of comedians. Therefore, it's maybe harder to get gigs than it was and uh, promoters aren't the enemy um some of them 
very occasionally act as though they are the enemy, but um, but but they're not. It's nothing personal, and it actually seems to be more impersonal in many ways. You know, you have to fill out forms. You know, you can't phone people like you can phone someone up and say, "Hey, you doing? Can I can I have a gig, please?" And they would, you know, they go, "Yeah, all right." Or, or not, you know, there was always that as well. So I guess it's harder to get gigs. There's a lot more comedians. Um, television has has taken precedent and, and really come to the forefront as well. Somebody with one television credit, you got two minutes on Jonathan Ross. That put that gives you a massive leg up, even if you've only got a 10-minute set. I'm not saying there's anyone on Jonathan Ross who's got a 10-minute set. I'm not saying that. What I'm saying is that uh, it's different priorities. You know, I, I wanted to be a comedian. That was what I saw. When I started, I went to the wharf in Cardiff and I just watched and I was amazed by it. I couldn't believe that people could do this incredible art form. You stand there for 40 minutes and make an audience laugh. That was amazing. I wonder if I could ever do that. No, I, I can't. I'm too shy. I, I think I'd be looking at my feet. And I was right. I was looking at my feet most of the time. So, But I just wanted to do that. And it's changed. The mentality of comics has changed as well. You know, you hear people say, I just want to get on live at the Apollo. You know, good. So do I. If anyone's listening to this, put me on live at the Apollo, mate. That's a huge mark of success. Huge mark of success. You kidding me? I'll do Russell Howard's show as well, if you don't mind. I know Jonathan Ross, I'm happy to do that. Uh, you know, I can do different accents if you like. All right. I'm Matt Price. You know, come on. So I'll do anything you like. Um, we all measure success in different ways. Obviously, I'm being quite flippant about it, but. I think that it's just, there's lots of different ways. Uh, there isn't one circuit anymore. There's lots of different elements to mm. the circuit. So you have to kind of, if you, I think you have to, you have to make it your own career you, for the most part. You know, unless you get success early on and I'm, you know, good luck to people. You have to make it your own career. But even then, those people who are very successful and, and get profile and get on telly and stuff and continue to be on telly, they've taken their own initiative and they've carved their own way through it. But that, that's how it's changed. It's not as easy as just ringing up and asking for a gig. It would be quite a funny sort of sketch, wouldn't it, if they did a two comedian yeah. or something like, and they just did one and said, right, I want to be in the Apollo and just call them and they put you in. Yeah, oh, absolutely. Well, do you know, I've had people say that to me. I, I had somebody say to me, I am a pork scratching salesman, yeah? And I've gone, okay, good, yeah? So, <laughs> right, look at me, look at Tomas, yeah? Right? You want to be on Live at the Apollo, yeah? You phone them up, right? You phone them up and you say, I'm going to be on Live at the Apollo, yeah? Because I want this, all right? Phone, phone McIntyre, say, Michael, you might be called Mickey, find out in advance, right? That's what good salesmen do. And you say to him, Mick, Mick, mate, Put me on, right? Yeah. <laughs> and I've gone, it pays £20,000. I don't care. Do it for 20 pence. Do it for nothing. If you want it bad enough, right? I want to sell pork scratchings. Like, oink, oink. Do you know what I mean? Brilliant, mate. You know, there's a huge <laughs> difference between selling scratchings. And I'm not knocking it either. I'm sure he was very successful. He doesn't like a scratching. But there's a difference between pork scratchings and me trying to sell me. And if I phoned up Michael McIntyre and said, oi, Mickey. Even if he likes to be called Mickey, he's not going to say, well, hello, yes, I'll put you on. He's probably going to call the police. Let's be honest about it. So, you know, no matter how much you, it's not as simple as everyone says, if you want it badly enough, you can get it. No, that's not always the case. You can try really hard. You can put things sort of uh, in place that might help you walk more towards it or go in that direction. But sometimes 
I don't know how motivating it is. We need a little bit of luck as well. Yeah. You know. It's, yeah, it's, what was the bit? There was a thought that came in there. I've forgotten it now, but no, yeah. It, yeah, it's, it's, but it's, I mean, there's, but there is a lot of other things in comedy as well, though, that make it sort of such a great thing because you've got comedians in like Boston who have their own sort of tour audience and they can perform to. Stuart Lee, he's got, he's his own boss. He gets to do what he wants. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And and Daniel Kitson as well. It's And it's remarkable how, and Jerry Sadowitz, like how do they manage to build their own sort of thing where they're like, right, you guys can sort off. I've got my own people. Fuck off. <laughs> well, I don't know. Do you know what? Maybe a huge amount of self-belief. You know, it's um, it's not easy for them to to be that. You know, it's not easy for them to to to. It's not easy to be Stuart Lee. He makes it look easy, <laughs> but I'm sure it's not easy to be him. You know, and it's um. I mean, I saw. I remember my friend Wes Packer, very good friend of mine. Uh, doesn't do comedy anymore. Doesn't do stand up anymore. And um, he phoned me on Christmas Eve and said, oh, I bought 90s comedians. That was years ago now. And he said, we might just as well quit, mate. You know, it's absolutely incredible. And that was when he was talking about um, vomiting into the gaping anus of Christ and the death threats that he received. And it, uh, But it was brilliant, you know, and, and really very, very clever and incredible callback at the end, but quite emotive as well. And you wouldn't expect Stuart Lee necessarily to make you feel emotional at the end of a show. You know, it was just little glimpses of emotion that gave it more power. You know, how you get to be Stuart Lee, I don't know. I think it probably, I don't know. I'd like to ask him, actually. Maybe you'll ask him. <laughs> no, but it's, it's, it's yeah, well, the, the thing that I'm getting at, I think one of the things I see is people seem to think that, oh, just getting on TV is the only thing. Like, they, they don't, they, I mean, if you're making people laugh, that's, that's, and, it's it's a great art form. It's the best feeling in the world when you make people laugh. Of think, course it is. Yeah. But I think people often forget that. Well, I, I think they do forget it. But on the other hand, it depends. If you're sleeping on a station and you're woken up by, which I've done, and you're woken up by the sound of pigeons shitting, um, television seems like a really good thing. You think, yeah, you know, I, I mean, I got dewey eyed the first time I was in Plymouth and I was in a hotel and I, you know, a B and B and I, and I saw sparks flying out of the kettle, you know, I thought it was amazing, you know, but wow. Yeah. I'm living my dream. I'm doing my thing. But after a while you think, no, actually I'd quite like to get a lot of money for being on telly. It's not the only way. I do think that it's worthwhile in itself. You, know, you wouldn't say to somebody who's kicking a football around on a Sunday, uh, why why are you bothering playing football? You're not playing for Manchester United, you know, or yeah. you, you're not representing England. You you wouldn't do that. You wouldn't say to an architect, we did you didn't um, and actually I'm actually quoting Michael Fabry now, fantastic comic from Brighton, who who made the point that you know if you're an architect, um you wouldn't expect someone to say, well you, you built the housing estate, you know, rather than uh than than the shard. You know, there's there's different ways. It doesn't mean that you're necessarily bad. But on the other hand, like like anything, listen, I take credit. If something's going my way, that's my hard work and talent. If it's not going my way, it's a conspiracy and everyone's out to get me. <laughs> that's the way I look at it. It's like everyone's out to get me now. And believe me, I'll go on telly anytime and it will just be because of my natural gift and charisma that got me. I'm, I'm kind of tongue in cheek when I say that, but 
<laughs> you know, I, I, I'd love to get on television. Of course I would. I just don't know how to do it. Where, where do you go? Because Mickey's not answering my calls. You know? That's not right, man. It's he needs to get get in contact soon. Yeah, come on, Mick, sort it out, sort it out, mate. You know, <laughs> I'll, I'll I'll give you some pork scratchings if you put me on. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> come on. And so with so with some of the you mentioned about the situation of birds letting waste on you, have you what what have been some moments that have really made you enjoy comedy that have like that you remember for all eternity um i okay uh wheeling a terminally ill man out onto stage that was that was good that that was interesting one yeah that was in um at the corn exchange in king's lynn it would have been about eight years ago i was on with jeff norcott who's obviously going to be very successful and i was compare and i was told by the manager now it was about it must have been it was very busy now i'd like to think it was 400 but it might have been three but it was a, you know, a pretty big crowd on a thursday night and they're up for their comedy and stage left stage was about a foot and a half off the floor and stage left there was a guy in a wheelchair so already you know it's going to be eventful right potentially uh, and the manager said that guy in the wheelchair he's terminally ill he has a month left to live he's dying of cancer please no jokes about cancer and no jokes about wheelchairs or disabled people and i'm going through my set list thinking well what am i going to say because you know i was planning on cancer wheelchair jokes all night tonight no i wasn't you know it never entered my head to say anything like that right i've got nothing that i wouldn't dream of doing that so i walk out and the guy's there with his family and I'm just doing the hello, how you doing? And the guy in the wheelchair, Mel, heckles. And I thought, I'm going to ignore that. And then he heckles again and, and they, he gets a laugh. And I thought, well, I'm definitely going to ignore that. Just front this out, front this out. And then he heckles a third time. And I thought, you know what? We need to deal with this. So I said to him, do you know the lovely thing about you being in a wheelchair? And he said, what? I said, this. And I walked over. And I could hear Jeff Norcott saying to Merrill O'Rourke, what is he doing? Why is it, what, what's he doing? This is mental. And I'm just thinking to myself, Jeff, you're probably right, but I've committed now. And I went over and I wheeled the guy to the front of the stage. Couldn't get him on the stage because he's a foot and a half off the floor. And his daughter was saying, be careful with him. And I was like, well, yeah, but he's got a month left to live. You know, I'm, I'm you know, things can't be much worse. And I said, so hi, um, I said, uh, you seem to be really funny when you were over there. What have you got to say for yourself now, Chief? And I put the microphone in his face and he said, you do realise that I'm dying and I've got a month left to live. And I said, oh, I was kind of hoping you might be a bit funnier than that. Right? Nothing. And then I said, what's your name? And he said, my name is Mel. And it went back and forth. And I quickly worked out that every time he spoke, the audience would laugh. And every time I spoke, they wouldn't laugh. So I gave him his moment, or it evolved into him having his moment, I should say. But that makes you sound a bit but dick, doesn't it? You know, gave a dying man his moment. I don't mean it like that. It was it was a wonderful thing. He would they were roaring with everything he said. And then I said to him, Thanks for messing up the show. I said, no one's gonna be able to follow that now. I said, I'm gonna push you, push you back over. I said, I don't think you can do it by yourself. And I pushed him over and and he got massive applause. And I kind of calmed them down a little bit. 
introduced Norcop, who was magnificent, and in opening the gig, and everything was great. And I hugged his daughter afterwards, and she said, "Thank you very much for, you know, for doing that." He's always fancied a go at comedy, and I thought, glad that worked out. <laughs> but you, but you didn't let them know you you. Oh, listen! I sometimes you have to front it out. Sometimes you have to go, oh, come on, really? Another terminally ill heckler? Are you kidding me? It's like I do it every week. Come on. You know, <laughs> but yeah, you know, not necessarily. But no, so, sometimes you, you have to know when to have front and you have to know when to have swagger. And uh, thankfully, I got it right on that occasion. And and how, how did you sort of, how did you get to that point? Because I've seen you on stage and I've seen you a lot of times. You you. You're very, I mean, you've performed in prisons, you've performed in all sorts of different sort of challenges mm. scenarios, which I've seen, I, I can imagine a lot of comedians I know, they would probably shit their pants and just stand there like a deer in the headlights. Oh, I've done that as well. I've done that as well, I promise you, I have. It's just that, um, it, for me, it's about, I've always <clears> tried to challenge myself anyway in life. My whole life's been about just trying to stand up to things I'm afraid of. And I think being exceptionally shy years ago and exceptionally self-conscious, my looks or lack of them has been the thing that people have beaten me to death with over the years. You know, oh, you're so ugly. You're disgusting. You know, I had a review from a promoter that I think her husband wrote, Matt Price is really ugly. And, and that that thing, but then when you reach the point, you, you it hurts. And then when you get out the other side of it, you think, you know what, I'm going to own it. I'll give you an example. I used to watch the film Muriel's Wedding, right? One of my favorite films. And I used to cry my eyes out watching that film because I thought I was Muriel, the ugly woman in it. She's not ugly at all, actually. But the point being, the, the dowdy woman who was never going to find love, who everyone was going to be taking the piss out of. And I realized in more recent years, actually, I'm her mate in the wheelchair who tells the pretty girls to go fuck themselves. So once I didn't become self-conscious, I thought, yeah, actually, I can do it because because I believe in this now. You know, I don't I forget any insecurities I have for the most part, I will forget. So I can do I feel like I can do anything when I'm up there because it's not unreasonable. If you do it right and you say it with enough conviction then you can walk a terminally ill man out onto the stage. I mean, you will think afterwards, how the hell did I do that? And if someone said, can you, right, we've got another one in next week. Do you want to do the same thing again? I'd be thinking, no, I think I'll, I'll let somebody else do it, to be honest. So the answer really for me is, is you know, they say like, um, dance like nobody's watching. Well, people are watching, but dance anyway, because it doesn't fucking matter. You're going to be dead one day. You know, so for me, it's like, and people, whatever insecurities I might have, people, even if they can see them, so what? So what? Life is so short. And honestly, you know, th th this isn't this isn't um, rhetoric on my part. This is genuinely how it happened. I used to be self-conscious. Now I have fun with it because I don't look like the other little boys and girls. I don't. I can't walk out and go, hey, guys, how you doing? Yeah, ladies, make some noise. I mean, I can, but I have to do it in my own way. But I'm, I've embraced the fact that I look how I look, I sound how I sound, I dress how I dress, and I communicate how I communicate. So that means then it's very free and very liberating to be able to just say, fuck it. This is what I am. So, so for comedians to get out of that bit, I mean, we all still get in the deer the headlights most. We of don't course. know what to do. Yeah. But for them to be, as one of the names you say, is to play any room. And one of the, the the starting point of that 
are you saying that comedians need to be more comfortable with themselves? Absolutely. Yeah, I, I think so. But also as well, you know, honesty is good as well. You know, honesty is good because you, it's okay to say to some, think about it, meeting a, an audience is like meeting a person in many ways. You know, you meet them for the first time, they might have seen you before. You say hello and you see where you, or sometimes you don't say hello, you know, but you, you meet an audience and you kind of, you kind of get on with it. Um, I think it's really important to be honest. It's okay, you know, I've, I've misjudged it. I'm, I'm not perfect, I'm not, I'm not a wizard at it, but I've learned through experience. Sometimes I've gone in too hard and I've, I've reached the point, whereas years ago that would kill the gig. Now I've gone, actually, do you know what? I've even said, mate, I, I didn't actually mean that, you know, I'm fear, I, do you know what it is? And I've, I've grabbed a stool, I did it in Cardiff once. And I, I grabbed a stool and I sat down and said, look, I said, I'm gonna be honest with you. I don't like my appearance. And so I'm very self-conscious. And so tonight, for some reason, when I walked out, I was reminded of how self-conscious I am. And I took that out on you. And I didn't mean to do that. I said, you're all younger, good looking people in my head. And, and I think I might have underestimated you. And I'd like to start the gig again, if you don't mind. And I did. Oh. And I died on my ass. No, I didn't. No, it was it was fine. Um, and so th there's nothing wrong with that level of honesty. You know, you, I think it's important just to own yourself. It depends what your insecurity is. We all have them. Everybody has it. But if you can own yourself and you can say, listen, this is what I am and this is what I do. And I'm doing it to the best of my ability. Then most people will find it hard to mock you. And there's always something to criticize anyway. Yeah. Even always. if someone's too perfect. Yeah, it doesn't matter how well it goes. You know, I, I did a gig in Cornwall and someone said to me, yeah, it was really good, mate, but Bill Hicks would have bloody stormed it. <laughs> and I'm like, you think that Bill Hicks would have been performing into a pub, in, in, in a local pub next to a pasty shop? <laughs> I mean, I'm sure he could have played it. Billy Connolly, right? He would have been absolutely amazing. Yeah, I'm sure Billy Connolly would be amazing and he is amazing. But there's 80 people in Hale on a Wednesday night. And I'm not sure if Bill's available for the gig. You know, there's always someone who's going to pull you down or, or you know, so I think it's important, I said, take ownership. But we are talking about something that's very heartfelt. And sometimes, unfortunately, when something is really heartfelt, it can, it's not easy to rationalise. Okay. Because, you know, because that bit that keeps you awake at night, that little bit where you think, oh, that joke didn't work or I died tonight or somebody was really nasty to me you know a comic said this you know and, and now I'm awake at four o'clock in the morning it's all very well to tell yourself you should take ownership you know take ownership be yourself but sometimes it can backfire on you because you're only human as well okay so you basically Listen. said everyone believe in the force <laughs> yeah but believe in the force but accept that sometimes your lightsaber ain't, isn't gonna like it should <laughs> sometimes that was too phallic wasn't it but you know your, your lightsaber <laughs> isn't necessarily gonna turn on you know and darth vader's gonna batter you so yeah but so treat everything every gig a bit like a roller coaster I, I, I mean, I'm, I'm well, here's another thing. I work out with the assumption that it, it can go well, whereas I always used to look at the things that would go wrong. But even then, it doesn't matter, because once you know yourself well enough, it's absolutely fine, you know, because because you just walk out and it, even sometimes there'll be a lull in a gig. And I'll even say to us, listen, can you remember a couple of minutes ago when you liked me? What's happened? 
you know, and you can say that because that, that suits my persona to be able to say that. It's not, I wouldn't say that every comedian in the world should say that because some people are different. How about tell a joke, you idiot? You know, tell, tell us a funny joke. But the, my persona is such that I can do that to an audience. I think once they've got over the uh, initial, I, I, I found actually that people are, with me, they're like, we don't believe you can do this. You know, I had a, there was a promoter who booked me for a gig in the West Country and I, it was in a nightclub in uh i think it was well in, in the west country basically on an industrial estate so obviously <laughs> hashtag when am i gonna do the apollo you know but i i was there it was saturday night decent money for doing it i'm closing the gig i had to make a little promotional video and uh, i'd unbeknown to me the manager when i got there was a little bit off for me and i thought it was a bit weird afterwards he said to me mate you were excellent he said i'm going to be honest with you i owe you an apology i kept saying to the booker all week i don't like the look of this guy i don't see how we can possibly entertain anybody i just don't see how that can possibly happen you don't look like a comedian you don't sound like a comedian there's nothing about you he said i was thinking how how could i pay money for that to entertain me that's what he said he said i'm Ooh. really sorry he said i'm really sorry and did you ask for extra money as a result as compensation <laughs> I, ironically i think he gave me a bag of pork scratchings actually it wasn't the same oh, guy okay. yeah but no but it was fine i just said no oh, mate i i understand it it's fine but what i'm saying is i've owned that you know i've been been through i've been out the other side so whatever it is you suffer with it's rather like i mean to put it in very simple terms so say anyone who's starting out or new or you know or, or is thinking well hang on how do i get over a death well you haven't actually died the fact that you're still alive means you can come back. Maybe not to that gig, or you probably can. But you know, but you 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 will do it again. No one's ever actually died of embarrassment. Honestly, no one's yeah. actually died of it. It's unpleasant and it's not nice, and you don't want it to happen. And it can take a few days sometimes to get over. You know, sometimes you just want to get back on the nearest stage. But the, there are there are ways of of, of coping. So the, I think a boxing trainer, I, I knew some boxing trainers, they always used to say to me, or one of them said to me, you can't teach experience, you can only experience experience. And it's rather like that with comedy. But the more you do it, the more you keep going, the more you keep trying, the more you embrace any insecurities you have and try to own them, I think the easier it becomes. The more you don't give a shit. What you, what you said there is a bit like, what's it called, some of the times... When you get, as you said, with those guys falling over that woman and then mm. someone like not giving a shit about her and then she's all over him. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, she wasn't all over me. I've got to add that as well. You know, I wasn't, I wasn't <laughs> saying that, but I'm just saying, but it was kind of funny from a stage point of view of being able to, you know, to not really, to, just to sort of take the mickey out of them all, the whole scenario. And suddenly I wasn't self-conscious, but equally I wasn't a bully with a microphone. I mean, I've never been that, but I wasn't kind of taking any frustration out of them. I was just pointing out the situation and it was great just to be able to laugh and flirt and joke with the audience and to feel like, oh, actually, this is really good fun. Like I can do this irrespective of what any insecurities I might have. That's a nice feeling, but that's my story. That doesn't mean it's the same for everybody. Hmm. And the more, more you can unsheath, more, more, the more, the more you're like it, and also it can't be used to hurt hurt you as much. And the more you embrace your faults, it's it's less it's harder for anyone to say if someone says, Oh, you're this or that, and you say, Yeah, I am this and that, so what? Yeah. 
Absolutely. And and so it comes down to, I mean, I, I, I love watching slick comedians. I think it's great when someone's really polished. Well, sometimes I'm slicker than others. Sometimes I'm a mess up there. Sometimes I, you know, so I don't know what the hell I was going to say. Has anyone seen my app before? What's my next joke, mate? But, you know, and, and it's all right to do that. You know, if it's if it's authentic to you. I actually, years ago, and I can't quite do this justice, but there was a comedy competition and there was a guy who was in it, a Welsh guy, who walks out, does his thing and got about a minute in and just said, oh, I can't do this anymore. And he walked off and he had his head down, a couple of hundred people there. And then something you could see something happened because he just straightened up, his whole demeanor changed. And he walked back and said, you know what? Fuck it. And he just went for it and he just let everything out and the whole place erupted. And they were just chanting his name at the end of it, Gavin, Gavin, Gavin. They went mental and he won the competition just because he just let it out. I mean, that could of course gone horribly wrong. But for me, it was the fact that it was raw and it was honest and it was of the moment that, that made it work and you had to be there because you because you know because you were going hang on what are you talking about wheeling a terminally ill man out onto stage how's that funny it was if you're there very funny you know it's a moment that i'm not going to be able to repeat but what do you mean someone in a competition final talking about how he's had tampons thrown at him because he works in a sanitary towel disposal unit so he's not in the best of forms and a drug dealer crashed his car into his house into his front room and that's why he's angry and how he looks like, you know, he looks like X, Y, and Z. But it does. As that was that the biggest sort of what the fuck moment where a comedian was able to change change a scenario and into and turn it into well, basically turn a, a ham sandwich into a Big Mac. Oh well, hey, hey, I like that. Um, it did, well, <laughs> probably, probably. I mean, it's a good thing, you know. It's a, hey, who doesn't like a Big Mac or a ham sandwich? I like them both, mate. You know, I've, I've, I'll eat both and I'll be both, <laughs> whatever that means. Um, I think it's always interesting to watch when a gig can be turned around. Of course, it's a, it's a pleasure to be able to do it, but sometimes you can't. Sometimes you know that that is one of the big. I mean, it's the most impressive thing. Because obviously it's highly charged, it's a competition. And you can say, well, you know, a seven minute competition or 10 minute competition set, that in the, in the sort of the, the realistic world of, uh, of, of a jobbing comedian, we don't do 10 minute sets. You know, it's rather like the, the jump from amateur box into professional, it's almost two different styles. Yeah. You know, and, um, it was probably one of the biggest turnarounds. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, it's, it's, it's very, very impressive for some, someone to be able to do that. I'm trying to think, I'm actually racking my brains for other great turnarounds because more often than not, as I'm sure you know, once they've made up the mind that you're no good, there's nothing, you know, sometimes there's nothing you can say. You can fight for it. You can fight for it and you can turn it around. But sometimes they, they're just like, no, nah, we're not having any of this. This isn't going to work, mate, no matter what. No matter what you do, I've had, I've had those. I still have those, by the way. I still do have those. I'm not not going to say I don't. I think anyone who's, no matter how long you've been going, anyone who says, oh, I don't die, well, good luck. Maybe you're not pushing yourself enough. Or maybe you're not realistic or honest. Or maybe you're just brilliant. 
which happens rarely, but I've seen. Yeah, I mean, it's fine. It, it, it's one of those things. I used to, I used to embrace the good death. I used to kind of like it. I said, oh, well, that's all right. That's a funny one. Another one for the collection. But um, I don't know, you change over the years. So, so one of the things that you mentioned in your other interviews is that you one of the big focuses of building an hour and like yeah. how do you how do you balance like when because you're playing all these big clubs and then you have to build an hour how do you balance both of those things that sort of conflict with each other well i mean for for me i i uh, i tend to compare a lot of the big clubs anyway so i can sort of use the improvisation skills i view i view it pretty much as a separate thing edinburgh as you know because an hour it's kind of a different pace almost and a different thing it tends to be on a theme you can try out try it out in short bursts i'll do it on a circuit i'll you know and also i'll i'll go and i will go and do a preview anywhere but the reality is that actually for me anyway I found in Edinburgh, I don't know what the show is going to be like until I'm actually stood on stage in Edinburgh. Because most people don't really know what Edinburgh previews are. They don't care. They, they honestly don't care. They, they, they're just, what do you mean Edinburgh preview? What do you mean the Edinburgh festival? Yeah, I've heard of that. So where are you? Playing the castle? You know, how many thousand people are turning up? Well, oh, I'm going to play to nine people if I'm lucky. You know, I, well, that's not accurate, but you know, so... I think that most people don't actually previews are okay. They're useful, but for the most part, most people who go and watch comedy, they don't know unless they're a proper fan. They don't know the difference between me doing a heartfelt hour and somebody doing their club set. And how do you, how do you balance the fun of it? Cause I've like of putting in new bits, like using the Edinburgh show and then putting yeah. new bits into your club set and then, how do you constantly evolve it and go forward in both both sort of circuits? Because I've seen some cases where it's just people just do straight up same 10, 20 minutes they've been doing for years and years. Oh, yeah. And, and we all do that to a certain extent anyway. It depends on the gig because, you know, you, some some gigs you can take a risk. And that doesn't mean that you don't value the gig. Of course you do. Every, every gig is valuable. You know, I'm not, I think, you know, I'm not, I'm never going to turn up thinking I'm too good for a gig ever not ever it doesn't matter how many people are there you know you, you can try it i did hear someone say that they did a, a show to one person once and the guy wanted to go to the toilet halfway through and the comedian said to him well i said can you not go because you're ruining my flow and the guy was going well you're going to ruin my flow if i don't go so can you like just <laughs> do it can you do it and i'll come back or something like that so he just said i said what do you do he said well I just just did the bit anyway and he wasn't there and he just walked back in again and I got to the end and he said, um, did you enjoy it? And he went, well, no, not really. But, you know, so um, I don't know where we were now. Sorry. I'm off on a no, flight fancy. I was saying um, one of the things that I want to, you, you say that we all do a lot of the same stuff for years, oh, yeah. years to an extent. But the thing, the thing that intrigues me is how do you keep refreshing both like the, the the 20 minute set and then well, do you use edinburgh to sometimes renew that club 20 I, minute set oh not not really no although sometimes there are bits that you can take from an edinburgh show it depends and, and for me i find the stuff that only works in edinburgh which is weird as well I, and i can't even say why it only works in edinburgh or why it only sort of works that year and that can be a bit frustrating you know and 
Um, for I think that for me, I just try I try and evolve the two anyway, and I try to to mix up what I'm doing. You know, I'm sort of I'm pegged as being a storytelling comedian. Well, that's not necessarily true. I like telling a story, but I I, I got some crap jokes as well. I've got all sorts of stuff going on. You know, my my job is to turn up at a room, you know, for most of the year and just make it work. So I'm, I'm always I'm always thinking to myself, and anything that I write, I'm thinking, oh, that could go into a show, or maybe that I'll add to the set, you know. So it it just depends. And even in Edinburgh, I mean, for me, it's a shame actually that Edinburgh has to be a structured hour, you know, and that club comedy is so looked down upon. Because what's wrong with just turning up and entertaining people and making them laugh? There's nothing wrong with that at all. But that seems to yeah. be sneered at. So I, for me. I do view them as two separate things, but it's still me standing on stage trying to be the best version of me in front of the audience. So, you know, you, you can take stuff from an Edinburgh show and you think, well, that story, I, quite often I'll shorten the story. I'll actually shorten it. And you, sometimes I'm shocked to say, you know, I, I'm thinking, oh man, I've cut that in half now, okay. you know, for, for the club set. What would you think? Because you don't need to give context. You know, like, I, for, for example, um, I did a thing in Edinburgh where I talked about going to a sex party for some um, for some criminals. So obviously I have to explain the context, the criminals and all that. So, you know, what, what they look like and, and what I was wearing and, you know, saying to my missus that I, you know, is it all right if I go and thinking hopefully she's going to say no. So that way I can say to the criminals, wife doesn't want me to go and, and she tells me well yeah you have to go of course I want to know what happens next I trust you you know so all that's kind of irrelevant on the circuit so I can just say rather than build that up I can just say I went to a sex party house here sex sex dungeon here I'm sitting in the garden here so automatically it's gone from being a four minutes you know, four minutes with jokes in to right bang get to the we'll, we'll get four jokes in that minute now or four, four jokes in about 45 seconds whatever it is so you, you can borrow from each. You, you can, some Edinburgh stuff will work on a circuit. Some circuit stuff can work in Edinburgh. And, and apart from like getting extra stage time and performing in front of different audiences, mm. in what other way do they both complement each other? Do they complement each other? Well, I think, I think for me, that, that's it really. It's just, it's just a chance to be on stage as much as you can. So it becomes second nature. You know what it's like when you're up there, you can, you, you can do, say, we can do lots of gigs. I've heard people do 12 gigs or something like that. That just seems a little bit too much muscle flexing for my liking, but you, you can do four gigs and you can do a solo show. And it's not that you don't care, but you think, well, actually, even if I'm dying now, so I'll be on stage again in half an hour. So it's fine. And then it becomes second nature. So it, it's all the same thing. You're still the same person and you're, and you're still doing your thing. Expectations in Edinburgh are different, I think. But the actual mechanics of being a comedian remain the same. It's still you talking, entertaining, performing and, you know, and making the audience laugh. It's just the expectations that are different. People come to a comedy club, they don't know who you are. Same with Edinburgh, actually. But all they want to do is laugh. They don't care really particularly if you've been on telly that's great but unless you're one of the absolute superstars they still don't really care that much um 
And as far as Edinburgh goes, yeah, it's, a lo it's lovely to be able to do an hour, but it's still, it's still you doing that hour. So by the time you get back from Edinburgh, you're a little bit tighter, a little bit sharper. You get used to it. There aren't any nerves. But that, that to me, that it's always been pretty much the same thing. So, yeah. Hmm. And how would you compare the Edinburgh sort of seven, well, you could, as you say, do 12 gigs a day, tons yeah. for like 28 days. How would you compare that with, gigging on the New York comedy scene or LA where you can sort of do that sort of number. But... Um, what, in terms of what, what it does to you as a comic, do you mean? Or... Yeah, because I'm intrigued by it because in New York, you could probably gig as many times there as you do in Edinburgh. Yeah, yeah, I would think so. I'd, I'd seek it. I, it's, it's just that thing of knowing that you, you don't even have time to be nervous. You don't really have time to think about it that much. You, you can just, you know, you're, you're just, you turn it, all right, you've got to bring you straight on now and you do your thing or, you know, and sometimes, sometimes as well, like we do Australia as well. Some, sometimes I'm told, oh, can you do 15? As I'm walking on and I'm like, oh, I've got 10 minutes. I'm like, yeah, I'll do 15. I'll just add this bit in. And you can, and it's great for sort of, um, for the uh, gigging gymnastics as it were, you know, working stuff out in your head. And, and it's great because actually, if you look at some of the old school comics, and as much as we might look now and think, come on, frilly shirts and mother-in-laws and inappropriate jokes, they were all very professional. You know, they could all turn up and they always had a line, they always had a joke. There was none of this, hey guys, how you doing? Yeah, so none of that stuff. Walk out, make the audience laugh, otherwise go. And there's something about Edinburgh and that intensity of gigging that does actually really help you because you have to, you, you, you're not blasé about it, but you're relaxed about it. And it helps your self-belief as well, which is good. And you can develop your, your craft, everything. You know, I, I always find, or I used to find when I come back from Edinburgh that I could hit the ground running on the circuit. Because of all the sharpness and all the... All the sharpness and just, you know, knowing. But but right now it, it's different because obviously I've been out of the game for a while, but I don't feel any nerves now. You know, I've, it's more, it's more, yeah, I don't really feel any nerves anymore, which, which is good after a while. So if I can do it, anybody can do it. You know? mm. do, do, do the nerves help? What, what, what is your opinion on it? Because I find sometimes in myself, if I'm very nervous and I don't think sometimes the more uncomfortable I am before I go on stage, the better I sometimes do on stage. Um, I think people work in different ways. I think yeah. that um, I would it'd be very, very interesting to watch somebody, if someone could film you for, I don't know, say a month or whatever, every time backstage what you do, you probably find you walk up and down the same in a similar way and you adjust your shirt in a similar way or whatever it is that you do, you'll have the same sort of physical ticks. You probably talk to yourself in a similar way prior to the gig. So whatever it is that works for you, because I think even repeating those patterns are good as well. You know, it's, it's important. So I, I know how my body feels when I'm about to go on stage. So I've reached a point where I can almost trigger that. You know, I don't have to, I used to get nervous a couple of days before, obviously when I was first starting out and then you get nervous on the day. And, and then you think, well, actually now rationally, I can control myself. I can actually have a word with myself and think, well, I don't need to get nervous. There's no point. You know, I, I can get nervous a couple of minutes beforehand. And that's when I pace up and down. But also, I'm just very, very focused. I don't want to speak to anybody prior to the gig. 
and just get on with it. And, and that, that, that's how I deal with it. So we're, we're all different. And for me, I just, I don't want to speak to anyone. Or if I am speaking, there's part of me that isn't there. It's like I'm in the room, but I'm not really in the room. And there's, there's part of the reason why you don't get nervous is because you speak to comedians that make you shit yourself. <laughs> and Maybe. It's compared to performing in front of an audience. <laughs> oh, well, uh, well, comedians or, or, or um, criminals. Yeah. I think with... Yeah, with criminals. yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, well, yeah, yeah. Maybe, yeah. Do you know? It's interesting, actually, for me. I mean, yeah. Well, yeah. It, it's a different perspective, but certainly, meeting criminals or ex-criminals and being friends with a couple of retired criminals who have a sex dungeon in the bottom of their garden and who are swingers and who get up to all sorts of stuff who I really like and that they like me and we get on with friends for 10 years. I've spent hours in their company. Um, that's given me a very different perspective on everything, on all sorts of things. Yeah. Without a doubt. You know, it's um, nobody's here's, here's the thing. Here's what I've sort of realized over the last, I don't know, maybe the last couple of years I've had more time to think. I don't know. But at some point it occurred to me that you don't have to be extreme. So I'm, I'm talking about other comedians now. If, if someone has a go at me on the comedy circuit, do you know the worst thing that's going to happen? They're not going to cave my head in with a knuckle duster, right? They're not going to break my legs with a baseball bat. The worst thing that's going to happen, they're going to bitch about me in a car, right? And that's it. That's all it is. Whereas these guys who I know in their world, they're going to get their head punched in or they're going to get shot. So I just think, yeah, that kind of gives me a certain perspective on it. And even in the criminal world, the guys who can fight are very few and far between. Some people love a good tear up, but actually there are criminals who will openly say, oh, no, I'm not going to have a fight or some of my mate round. Sent mental Billy around, you know, you know, we'll go around and he'll have a go at somebody. And you think, yeah, God, he loves a good tear up. He does. He'll bite the guy's face off. Yeah, no problem. Job done. You know, so it's almost, hang on, what happened to a square go? What happened to, you know, to, to a fair fight? Well, you know, there's lots of there's lots of definitions. It can be quite murky. So meeting those people has actually helped me, giving me a little bit more swagger as well, actually. Tiny bit. Tiny bit of confidence goes a long way. Because if you can understand and deal with them, you can deal with yeah. other people easier. Well, you can, but also as well, you say, I've learned that not everything in life has to be extreme, you know, because in their world, you would think that criminals, retired or not, would be sat at home plotting, stealing stuff. Let's rob a bank. Let's all just sit there all day talking about banks we've robbed. They don't. They, they, they actually don't do that. And they don't go around punching everybody or shooting everybody, because if you do, you go to jail. So that kind of gave me a different perspective. You know, that someone said to me, look, he said, if I punched everyone in my life who deserved to be punched, I'd be a very, very busy man. You know, I wouldn't be able to talk to you right now. And that's a very weird thing to hear. You know, it's a, it's, it's a strange thing, but it does give me a certain amount of perspective. You know, as I said, I, I spent a huge amount of my life trying to prove myself certain things to myself and you know the, the podcast came about because my missus got attacked and i've sort of spoken about it before and you know again i want sympathy for it i'm just it's just very matter of fact that's why i wanted to speak to criminals and in doing so i've learned a tremendous amount from them now, i'm not i don't big up crime i don't think it's glamorous i've seen the consequences of it i felt the consequences of it 
but they're definitely interesting people. They have a wicked sense of humor. And I'm not scared. I'm not scared of violence anymore either. Always used to be scared of violence, always worried about it. Always used to think, you know, I don't know, am I a proper man? Well, yeah, of course I am. You know, I'm all right. And it's quite, again, very liberating to feel that way. And one of the things you said was, so two questions I want to ask following yeah. on from that, is like, they say that comedians and crim criminals are similar in some ways in that they like to live a different sort of life than the nine to five. What have you found the similarities between comedians and criminals and the differences? Well, I mean, the, the similarities are that, um, yeah, we're kind of on the edge of society, really. I mean, obviously, you know, you can say some of your jokes are criminal, but not really. I, you know, I think I, I was in a car with, um, with Phil Cooper, lovely Welsh guy, comedian, good, good, funny guy. And I said to him, I don't know why I'm so obsessed with these criminals. He said, well, because they're like us. He said, well, obviously, we're not committing crimes. He said, but we wouldn't be able to work in a bank, you know, or work in a call centre. I mean, could you actually imagine what the, what the comedy circuit would be like if we all worked in one big factory? It'd be terrible. It'd, it'd just be awful. You wouldn't know. It's the same packaging fish fingers or something. You know, people would be fighting. Oh, I think my face should be on the, on the package. It'd just be awful. Um, so I think the fact that it's a non-conventional life, so I have nothing against work at all. I just don't like formal employment. And I think that criminals are probably quite similar in that respect. Um, the difference is that, I mean, I'm talking, the active ones, I very rarely get to meet anyway. I met a few, but I'm just like, listen, <laughs> I'll speak to you in 10 years when you've been caught or whatever, you know. But I think for the most part, it's a lot more secretive than comedy is, hmm. you know? I think comedians are quite scheming sometimes though, and can be quite manipulative. I do, and, and that's no, not, not knocking anybody in particular, but I think they can be. So, but, but the main thing is that they don't like formal employment either, but they are prepared to work for, for what they have. I'm not saying that they should be by any means, but they do. And hmm. the humor, the humor is amazing. So, going on that so like and they're both over they're both not as glamorous as they seem and also you're saying the humor yeah mm. because they've i watched some documentary i went to a live show with someone who'd been kidnapped by the taliban and it was supposed to be a serious it, it was yeah it's supposed to be a serious topic Matt. like it was meant to be serious but because it was such a harrowing and story i don't know it just came across as quite funny like yeah. the way he because it was such a unique story and the experience, it ended up being quite funny. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Is that because criminals, as you say, they have a wicked sense of humor because they've lived such a wild life and sometimes they're off limits. And I mean, that's sort of helps with comedy, as you said before, if you more yourself, because they're unhinged in a way. Does yeah. that, is that like they don't care if they get looks come across as this or that because they go past those limits and they don't give a shit. Yeah, do you know, I've never thought of it like that, but that's that's very astute, actually. Yeah, you're right. You're absolutely bang on. I think one of the things, I love them for their humour, but I love them for the fact that they don't actually care what people think. Um, and that's good. I'm talking about the two guys in particular. that I know Dave, Dave and Brendan, my, my mates. They're, they're, you know, they, they don't really care what people think. And, and they're retired now anyway, but um, but they, they're not worried about what anyone thinks because they can't really change people's perceptions. 
you know, and they kind of have fun with the fact that, you know, I mean, Dave told me, he said, oh, I'm on a devil worshipping site. <laughs> you know, and I'm like, really? He went, yeah, yeah, they reckon I drink blood. He said, I don't. And, you know, <laughs> so obviously, I'm, and, you know, and that to me is just great. It's just, it's just amazing. You know, I'm just like, wow. He said, I said, do you worship the devil? No, of course not. He said, I don't believe in God, let alone the devil. You know, and then his mates takes the piss and they, you know, they because and they're un, they, because they're unconventional, they attract unconventional people into their lives as well. So, so these two guys are swingers and they have, you know, they had a disabled swingers party. So and a woman rang up and said, oh, can I hire out the, the sex dungeon, please? And they said, well, yeah, it's a wheelchair access. And they were like, well, I don't know. What, what, what's wheelchair access required? Oh, we can carry him in if we need to. Yeah, yeah there's wheelchair access. You know, and 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 the the disabled swingers had a fantastic time. Another time they had a Vietnamese rave. You know, and and it's just because that's how they need to survive. They have, you know, so it is unconventional, and they have all sorts of unconventional people turning up. I mean, one guy showed up from Swindon, and saying, "I come over on the mega bus. Um, I'm an assassin. Can I can I have a job?" And the and the, the boss man said, "Well, you know, taking the piss." He said, "Well, yeah, come in." You know, he said, so what, what's your choice of weapon? The guy said, well, crossbow. I, I, I like to kill people with crossbows. And then and Dave said to him, well, um, you know, come on in, because we'll have an interview. We're not actually recruiting for assassins at the moment. He said, but I'd like to know what other strings you have to your bow. And I'm thinking, that's a funny line, mate. And the guy hasn't laughed at that. Do you know what I mean? So why are you not laughing at that? And he comes in, and he's, the guy's got a finger missing. He said, oh, yeah, um, a dog bit my finger off. And he's going, oh, and, and then Dave's saying, well, look, we're not recruiting assassins, so put your crossbow away, he didn't have it with him. He said, <laughs> but um, he goes, we're having a bare-knuckle boxing fight at the bottom of the garden, so we need a referee. Oh, no, I could do that. He said, yeah, but you can't, though, because you, you can't count anyone out because you've got a finger missing. You only better count up to nine. What if someone gets knocked down? You know, so it, they just took the piss the whole time. Someone else turned up saying, oh, you yeah, know, remember me back in the day? <laughs> no, mate, I haven't got a clue who you are. <laughs> so they, they have to have a sense of humor and they have to take the piss. And also because they have criminal records and because they're known, they can't go and get a standard job in Tesco. You know, we think as comedians, we've committed to a lifestyle. You know, sometimes a criminal can commit to a lifestyle so much and a life of crime so much that they can't actually really realistically come back from it. So they have to laugh about it. And these two guys in particular, they are, you know, they are my friends and they're funny and they're ridiculous. And I tell them that. And they're, they're a joy to be around. But it's not the crime. It's when my uncle Jeff retired, he took up crown green bowling. When my friend Dave retired, he bought a sex dungeon. You know, and you just think, wow, I know who I want to be around. I know who I want. No offense to my uncle Jeff, but I know who I want to be around. Yeah. I, <laughs> it's, I mean, it's and you the, the the thing that you stuff you find interesting is that they're unpredictable and you yeah. never know what's going to happen next or what they're going to say or what interesting thing you're going to find out about them oh without a doubt you know i went up there one day and um i think it's on the podcast actually and, and you know but i heard a, heard a guy saying to dave oh i mean i shot him in the head dave you know you should have seen the claret everywhere mate and of course you know i was looking oh no matt relaxed he works in pest control it's all right he's talking about shooting a rat in the in the head and then brendan was going how much does it pay it was 50 quid for a pigeon fuck off 50 quid a pigeon we could get some pigeons then 
You know what I mean? Like, I'll, we'll do it for 30 quid if you want. You know, so they're, they're always sort of scheming and trying to, trying to get money from something as well, legal means of making money. So it's always unpredictable. It's always eventful. You know, they've, um, and, and you, get, you get sort of silly moments as well. I mean, they, I went up one day and they had, um, he said, oh, do you want a special cup of coffee? Well, of course I want a special cup of coffee. And basically someone had broken into a warehouse. I don't even know who it was. Uh, two guys but it was the wrong warehouse and they ended up that they had like um coffee cups the little coffee cups that come out of machines but with coffee in so and, and they they stole them anyway then they realized well hang on what if the police come around to our house and they and they raid us we better get rid of this coffee so they went around south london giving everyone all these cups of coffee so he says so we've got 500 cups of coffee so if you want a special cup you can you're drinking evidence um, but, you know, I hope you enjoy it. If you want another one, you're welcome to get it. And I just always say to them, I can't resist. I just need to know what happens next. And we went on a road trip recently um, to South Wales to get a one-armed bandit and a canoe. So, you know, it, so it's, it's an endless list of stories and an endless list of events. And I guess, weirdly, beneath any sort of bravado or beneath any exterior, they're kind of underdogs. And I like that. What do you mean by underdogs? Do you feel? Well, because people don't really understand them. I think people assume that if you've committed a crime, you're always going to be that. And people evolve at different points in their life. Now, obviously, I'm not, look, I'm not wanting to sound like a wishy-washy liberal, but I'm talking about the two guys that I know they're actually very different. If I believed everything that everyone told me about my friend Dave, I would never go to his house. You know, I've heard pe people say all sorts of things. And he, he said to me, he said, yeah, he said, people say I'm a child killer. He said, no, I've never killed a kid. He said, I, I didn't realise I worshipped Satan. You know, but that would put me off. A child killer who worships Satan, that's pretty bad. Well, it's not pretty bad, it's awful. But but he's not that. He isn't that. He is a, he is a very funny man and he is a very good, he's definitely a character. I've, I've seen yeah. his interview. Yeah, the stuff he says. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, no, and, and they are quite ridiculous. But at some level, he's not just all that. He isn't all that. You know, he's a very entertaining guy. And, and he'll say he's an entertainer, which he is. And he is. He's very funny. And he, yes, he's committed crimes, but, you know, a long time ago. But there's a lot more to him than that. And that's what intrigues me. So I've been trying to get to the bottom of it for the best part of a decade. Mm. And is that... <clears throat> One of the things you mentioned, so one of the things also, maybe, and I want to hear what your thoughts are, is that comedians and criminals, we don't live in them maybe as structured a life, some of us, as people that are nine to five. We're a bit all over the place. And would you say that the, quite, quite a lot of us as comedians, we're also quite, um, like Lynn Ruth Miller says we're, would you say we're quite multi-dimensional as well? Do you find that a lot more? <coughs> so, sorry to cough, man. <coughs> ah, oh, sorry, mate. <laughs> all right. I'm so sorry, mate. No, sorry. I've been done letting it out for a while. I didn't want to <coughs> cough over the top of you. Um, <laughs> well, yeah, I, th I think the fact that we work when other people are socialising makes us unconventional anyway. 
I think I'll get rid of that bit. I was just waffling on there. Yeah, no, 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 it's cool. But no, but I, I think that um, we are unconventional. And the fact that we work when other people are out socializing, having a good time automatically makes us different anyway. I don't think the audience realize it. You know, you, you can get drunk every night of the week if you wanted to. Well, people can be very generous, but you, there's automatically a different attitude. You know, where do you go to socialize if you're a comedian? Because you know, I, I certainly spend a lot of my life near a bar. I don't I don't drink actually anymore. Not very much anyway. So I don't want to go to the pub on a Saturday night. So okay, that yeah. automatically makes you very different to other people. Hmm. I think. I think. The last bit when I said there, I waffled a bit, and I think that's right. <laughs> that bit went went over, all over. That's the cool. Place. That's okay. That's all good. But yeah, there is a lot of interesting points there, and you you you've also run a few. You you put the two worlds together, haven't you? Like comedy and because you've invited a few of your friends onto comedy gigs. Is that right? Um, they they've showed up. Well, the criminals. Yeah, they have. And also Dave does shows. So I've done shows for him. I did one actually uh, after the first lockdown when they it was legal to do it, I must add. Uh, we did a show in his back garden. There were 60 people at a you know, socially distanced. And I stood on a sheet of plywood on, that was placed over the top of his jacuzzi. So I was about six foot off the top, off the off the ground. That jacuzzi was taken from the top of an illegal drinking den. Um, somewhere it was yeah somewhere i can't say exactly where it was but um the police went to raid the place and the guy who ran it locked everything up got everyone to snort all the powder drink all the alcohol and stood on top of the roof threatening to throw himself off because the police have to obviously address the issue of suicide threat take it very very seriously but the upshot was that he, he thought oh there's a jacuzzi here. Oh, David probably like this. So we phoned Dave and Dave went to, went to get the jacuzzi and it took a couple of days eventually to, to get it back because they had to call in various favours. On the first night, someone, they, they got a crane, borrowed a crane, but the guy had to drive away in the crane and leave the jacuzzi on the side of the road. So they got someone to sleep in it to stop people from stealing it. Then they got a lorry. Then the lorry, when it got back to South East London, couldn't get down, down into the... Uh, into the road to, to get to Dave's garden. So they got, they were blocking the road up. They got 10 people to carry it in, plonked it in the garden. And that's how that got there. And I'm stood, the jacuzzi doesn't work, but I, I've got, I'm stood on top of this plywood over the top of the jacuzzi with a guy with a tattooed face about 10 feet away from me. Um, he's the only one who's sort of looking at me. And so that was quite an interesting gig. It actually went very well in the end. But um, I could feel the plywood flexing underneath me. And I thought, people are actually filming this. If this breaks now, this will go viral. And that, you know, and I thought, but my missus will kill me because obviously it'll knack on my clothes and my new shoes and all that. So, <laughs> you know, it's a very, very tricky one. And I, you know, I, I did the gig, jumped off the jacuzzi onto the floor. And Dave said, right, I'm doing my bit from down here. I'm not an idiot. I thought, yeah, great. Thanks for that. But you know, but we we had we had a good time. So yeah, they have come to my gigs. I've done gigs with them. I did one at um, Charlton Football Club, and they had a raffle, which was kind of funny because there were a lot of there were a lot of kind of 
I don't know, whether you would call them faces or criminals, whatever you want to call them. There were some act, definitely some active people there and there was a raffle. And very long story short, he was trying to raffle off various things and he said, oh, you can, who wants to bid on a, a driving a racing car at Brands Hatch? And someone said, oh, come on, Dave, I can nick a better car than that, son. So he went, okay, um, who wants to bid on a knuckle duster? And every hand went up in the room and he sold a knuckle duster for 150 quid for charity. And again, it was fine, but I, you know, I tend not to take it too seriously because I know, and they know that certainly the active people or the former criminals, they all know that they can beat me up. There's no, there's no doubt about it. No, none of them are going to be thinking, do you know what? I need to challenge myself against Matt Price. None of them are going to be thinking that. So, and it's so ridiculous sometimes that, that you just think, and I don't even say this is just ridiculous look at you mate you could you could actually take my life and you'd enjoy it you know and and of course they're going to laugh so so they, they know who they are so it makes it an interesting dynamic and actually when they came i opened for um stephen k amos on one of his tour shows um a couple of the guys came along and and they sat at the back of the room they said oh we didn't want to put you off you know if we sat in the front we thought it might distract you i thought it was very nice so they can be very civilized as well. Hmm. But they're misunderstood. Sometimes, but then aren't we all to a certain extent? You know, we, we can all be misunderstood sometimes. You know, I, I I do my absolute best. I really do. And sometimes, no matter what you do, as I say, people will say, Well, that, that didn't sound right, or you know, you 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 sound like this. And you think, no, that isn't what I meant. It's yeah. <laughs> Basically, you're you're saying, yeah, I got your point. I think it's basically people just because of they're they're too quick to jump to conclusions and don't see the deeper layer and go beyond that. And yeah. it's like sometimes I hear in comedy like people have said, oh, if you're a conservative supporter, we can't be friends, or they say ridiculous yeah. things like that. Like, just, come on, man, there's dickheads people that support Labour. There's nice. <laughs> What's all this about? Absolutely. My granddad, or I think, yeah, my granddad used to drink in the Liberal Club because he said the beer was cheaper, you know, and you're like, wow, OK, granddad, you know, I, mean, I think he voted Labour, but he would drink in the Liberal Club, just cheaper beer. Made sense. You know, <laughs> and so as, as far as people's beliefs and one of my favourite comedians at the moment, actually, is Leo Curse. I love Leo Curse. Brilliant comic. Excellent. He makes yeah. that man makes me laugh a lot. Very, very funny guy. And well, I don't actually know what his politics are because I've never thought to ask him. I just thoroughly enjoy, no, I've worked with him recently, actually. I thoroughly enjoy working with him, always entertained by his set. And it'd be interesting, actually, because I think he's going to do very well, and I hope he does. And I think when he does Live at the Apollo or whatever it's going to be when he does get on television, it's going to be interesting to see whether people are still quite so critical. Because I dare say it'll be, oh, no, Leo's amazing, always new. Because because people can be a little bit fickle in that respect. Hmm. You're, effectively, you do. Do you feel that if someone's a bit different, a bit out there, if they make it, it's bigger. Like there's a much bigger impact than someone who's sort of too much like everyone else. Is that what you're saying? You're saying because well, it's different. Well, I I don't know. I mean, look to, to be honest with you, to the general public, they don't really know who we are anyway. 
No. I don't. All they want to know is, have you been on telly? Yeah, I have. Well, what were you on then? Because I didn't see you. All right. Are you famous? Well, if you have to ask, obviously, you know, I'm not. You know, so it's so the, the public don't care anywhere near about comedy as much as we do. So to be honest with you, by the time someone gets on telly, I'm not sure how big an impact it has. I don't know because I've never done it, so I wouldn't be able to know. You know, yeah. I've eaten pork scratchings, <laughs> but, I, but I don't know. I don't know about telly. I wouldn't wouldn't have a clue. But I, I think with someone like Leo, I think he's very distinctive. But what I'm saying is. Anybody who says, oh, well, he votes conservative, I don't like him. There'll be a lot of those people who, if he does, when he does get on television, who will be saying, oh, no, Leo's a great guy. Because they will, because they want to be associated with somebody who's been really successful. And so there is an awful lot of that sometimes. That's all right. You know, wouldn't be my, wouldn't be my style. I'm actually saying, well, I supported Leo Kirst long before anybody else did. That's what I'm saying. <laughs> but I'm not really. <laughs> <laughs> people are fickle quick to jump in a bandwagon yeah of course yeah very much so and i get it and that's okay that's all right you gotta you know you you, you do you and i'll do me that's it okay and one of the things is i'm just going to ask you two questions now yeah uh how did you get into the process of you being like a storyteller i mean you you hate you don't want to be pigeonholed and but like how did you get known as that well i mean i don't want to be pigeonholed unless of course anyone's looking for a storyteller in which case once upon a time you know <laughs> um matt pride no I, I you know i've always liked to yarn anyway and also you know i've always i'm maybe it's a cornish thing my uncle jeff uh used to tell stories to holiday makers in exchange for a beer it was one of the things that he did. I remember as a kid just watching him talk. He'd, he'd do a, you know, he'd talk for a couple of hours, not on stage. He'd be just sat at his local pub just making stuff up. You know, he would watch the, the news and the weather report, and he would go in then at about whatever time it was, you know, one minute past seven to his local pub and go, all right, boys, right up. Well, tell you what, you know, there's going to be a southeasterly easterly breeze tomorrow with a, you know, an increase in pressure from the North Atlantic, just memorizing what he'd seen on telly. And there's a cow lying down outside, and that's all I know. And people would gather around, and they, they would buy him a pint, and he would get to about that far away from his pint, a little bit, a couple of mouthfuls left, and he would go, oh, trying to remember the story now, a bit thirsty, a bit dehydrated. And they would buy him they would buy him a, another pint, and then he would remember the story. And, and that would go on. He'd have five or six pints of an evening. It would, sometimes the story would last all night. So I kind of grew up watching people who um who told stories it's a very cornish thing you know my mum my mum was actually a very very good public speaker as well she was a road sweeper and she was a shop steward she was a very very good public speaker but she could engage people and she would tell stories so i've always liked that that kind of that sort of style okay and so you, did you so it started off like that as soon as you got into comedy you were like well do you know I, I wanted to write a book about professional about boxing actually and I kind of, I found a publisher and then it fell through for various reasons. And I always felt, wow, that the, these people's lives are just amazing. You know, I spent a couple of years learning how to fight, but I wasn't particularly good at it. I was all right. And I wanted to write a book about boxing. I was really enchanted by boxing wisdom. You know, upstairs for thinking, downstairs for, for dancing. No place to hide in the ring. And on all those little sayings. And I could look at my own life and I thought, wow, I'd love to be able to do that as a show, maybe a piece of theatre or something or a comedy show at some point. And I just liked, I liked talking about people, 
because I like people anyway. So I, I'm, so the storytelling style, I suppose, emerged from that. Really. Okay. And was it was there a lot of store was there a lot of comedians around that time that did that sort of thing? No. Absolutely not. I, I don't think so. I'm not saying I was the first. I'm not a pioneer. I just I just did my own thing. In fact, I can remember, and Matt Hollins won't mind me saying this. It might have been 2006, I think, sat on a stool in Leicester, dying on my ass, and one of his his auntie or somebody saying, "Oh, we should we should do the spoken word circuit or something like that." You know, fair enough. That's valid criticism because I hadn't I hadn't I hadn't really evolved as a comic at that point. You know, I didn't really know. I think we all go through a phase where you think, actually, I don't know why I'm funny. I don't know. I know I can do it sometimes, but I don't know how I can do it consistently. So that lack of consistency is what frustrates you to begin with. So to start with, it was just a bloke telling stories and I'll get some laughs, but it's only when you start to think about, well, what is it about me within the story that makes it funny? What are the nuances that I can add? So now I just know a lot more about performing because I didn't know anything about performing. I played the part of the narrator in Charlie and the Chocolate Factory when I was nine at school, and that was it. You know, so I, so I had to learn how to perform and learn what to do in my hands and learn how to not be self-conscious and learn how to use my voice and learn how to perform in half a dozen different ways, depending on what the room is, and you know, memorize the story enough so that if somebody heckles, you can deal with it and then go back to the story. So, you know, so learn how to paint the pictures properly and learn how to do a one minute version of a story and then two, three, four, five, however. You know, so lots and lots of stuff to actually learn. So I don't think anyone was doing it initially. There might, there might have been. Actually, I'll tell you what, Will Hodgson. Will Hodgson was probably the person who inspired me the most. Okay. Because he's a fantastic storyteller, absolute genius. Will Hodgson. So, yeah. And you said now with you weren't a pioneer but you said that now it's becoming more they're more mixed in like straight stand-up and stories yeah ab absolutely yeah yeah it is i mean i just um well we all evolve and i i like interacting with an audience but there are times where you where it's just not going to work for whatever reason and also you know i i still I'm, I'm, I've still got the voice of the pork scratchings guy in my head, you know, and, and there's part of me that well, I want to go, I'd like to go on television. It's not like a desperate ambition of mine. I'm not desperate, but, but I would. And I don't think that, you know, in audience interaction, people have said to me, there's no way could you do that again? And you think, well, no, I can do it again. You know, it is possible to do that again. It's not impossible because I've just done it. So I can do it again. But it's nice to have set material that you can do. And I do like set pieces. And it's nice as well to be able to think, oh, do you know what? I've, I've got a new bit and I can really hammer this and really make the audience laugh. You know, for like a lot. See how many laughs I can get in a minute. Because one of the things that you get, and this is the competitor coming out and me, maybe, or maybe, I don't know what it is about me that's coming out here, but some people will say, oh, well, I'm more gag, 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 bang, bang, bang. And I'm like, no, you're not. I don't say that. I would now. I would actually, I would now, because I've changed. But I, but I think, no, no you're not. You, know, you can tell a story and it can be really funny. You know, you, you can get loads and loads of laughs by acting out a story. And I know people who do. So the main thing is for me now is trying to be as funny as I possibly can by whatever means necessary. 
even if it was punching someone in the audience. <laughs> well, yeah, no, the, well, yeah, I mean, no, that, I, uh, <laughs> well, I, I probably get a great story out of that, but, but no. <laughs> um, but other, other, I don't do singing. I don't do nudity. I will wheel a terminally ill man out onto stage, although maybe I would think twice about that now, and I'm definitely not going to punch anybody. But other than that, <laughs> that's a broad yeah. spectrum. That's a broad spectrum. <laughs> I think anything goes. <laughs> yeah, pretty much, pretty much. Like UFC. Yeah, I, absolutely. That's a perfect analogy. Yeah, I, yeah. No, I'm. You know, the comedy equivalent of UFC. That's me. Man. I'll gouge out your eyes. You know, <laughs> Edinburgh poster. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Listen, I, I'll do that. No problem. I'll hold a skull with someone's eye hanging out. I can't believe that. That's the, who's going to come and see that bag of pork scratchings in one hand, skull with <laughs> eyes bulging out in the other. You know, whatever it takes. Whatever it takes. Oh, well, get attention. <laughs> the comedy cage fighter. I kind of like that. <laughs> Twitter handle. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Well, my Twitter's knackered at the moment, so yeah. Um, unfortunately. And speak your Twitter. How how do people get in touch with you? Find out about you and like your social media handles, gigs you're doing. Oh man, gigs I'm doing a few and far between at the moment because of the pandemic, but there are there, you know, they're, they're, they're coming back. Um, I think I'm at Matt Price Comic on Twitter because that, that's a new account. I have two followers at the moment. Um, genuinely two followers. And it's not my friends, Dave and Brendan. I mean, because my old account, someone tried to hack it and then the email account, I missed a long, sad, sorry story. So basically I had to start Twitter again but people seem to think that it's a Matt Price tribute act. And I have to say, um, there's only one Matt Price. Well, actually, there's not. There's a very funny American comedian called Matt Price. But, you know, there's only two Matt Prices. And um, I've got a new account. So follow me at, at Matt Price Comic. How about that? Okay, guys, make sure, you, cool. yeah. make sure you follow him and make sure you listen to his podcast on Conversation with Criminals. Yes, conversationwithcriminals.com. It is good. It's fun. I've got fun. Sometimes it's fun. Sometimes it's uh, quite yeah. scary. Yeah, harrowing. You know? Well, guys, uh, I'll see you guys in the next episode. Make sure you subscribe. Give us a five-star review. And take care, everyone. Mm -hmm.